Great. Thank you so much for uh, the kind uh, invitation. Thank you, Bruce, for having me and for all the years of support and kindness. Um, I was asked today to uh, speak on um, IDH uh, inhibitor. Sorry, I'm a little bit, my size is. Um, IDH inhibitor therapy and uh, acute myeloid leukemia is sort of an, an exciting uh, field. Um, so let us move forward. These are potentially relevant disclosures uh, that I've listed here in terms of consulting and clinical trial support. Uh, I've always been a bit of a uh, uh, history uh, nerd. So I've, uh, I've started to uh, put a slide together when I talk about acute myeloid leukemia to sort of provide a historical background. Um, acute leukemia in terms of a diagnosis is actually fairly young in our history. Uh, in the early 19th century, uh, Virchow and John Hughes Bennett independently, probably they were <laughs> fighting over it, but uh, independently descri described cases uh, of um, uh, separation, uh, spleen enlargement, low blood counts, uh, looking at autopsy uh, specimens. That's a picture of a Virchow there, and he actually published a a paper uh, titled it uh, Weissblut, which means white blood, pretty advanced case of leukemia, I suspect, um, uh, to describe the initial cases of uh, acute leukemia. It was not uh, until a, a few decades later uh, when Ernst Newman uh, suggested that the bone marrow was the origin of blood cells as well as malignant cells. And then we had to wait um, 100 years or so before we started to better classify and understand uh, acute leukemias. And that process in the current era of molecular diagnostics uh, is expanding rapidly. Let's fast forward rapidly to the current day. Um, and I, I suspect, although that the proportion of uh, malignancies in general it resembles what we had in the 19th century, uh, but the numbers are higher, obviously, because we're aging more. And every year, uh, the median age of AML goes up by a year or so. Currently, the median age is around 68 years. Um, and uh, just to sort of put this in perspective, maybe I should step away from the microphone a little bit so that uh, to place this in perspective, uh, AML is a relatively uncommon disease, thank God. Uh, it's about a log or so less than the common malignancies we see, such as colon cancer and breast cancer. Uh, but we don't do a very good job of uh, curing these patients. The majority of patients with acute myeloid leukemia still die as a result of the disease or as a result of the treatment. Uh, the traditional prognostication of AML was uh, patient-centric uh, or disease-centric. Uh, patient-centric in the sense that, generally speaking, we looked at imperfect surrogates of prognostication. One would be age. So as I mentioned, the median age of 68 typically means that half your patients are going to be in their 70s and 80s, and that makes things a bit more difficult. Older patients at times have uh, compromised organ function, may have other comorbidities, may have a, a functional status that precludes aggressive treatment or a bone marrow transplant. So age is an imperfect uh, surrogate for other things that may impact how patients will do with treatment. Of course, you don't have to be older to have medical comorbidities, and we have patients with uh, renal failure on dialysis, patients with uh, a vast variety of advanced uh, 
you know, multi-organ dysfunction from other uh, diseases that may preclude aggressive treatment of AML as well. Um, let's talk about disease-specific factors. Did the AML arise out of a preceding uh, marrow condition? Uh, ben Ebert was here earlier today, gave a wonderful talk about MDS uh, and uh, clonal hematopoiesis. Well, a large proportion of patients, particularly those who are older, their acute myeloid leukemia arises from a preceding myeloid neoplasm, uh, whether it be MDS, CMML, CML, um, uh, myeloproliferative neoplasms, if the AML arises from a corrupted soil to begin with, it's difficult to put that patient back into a remission, and we'll talk about that briefly. And then even more recently, starting in the 80s and then the 90s and in the last 20 years, people have looked at certain cytogenetic and mutational profiles within the leukemic cells, the so-called blasts, that may give us some information about prognosis. Certain chromosomal changes suggest a better prognosis. Other chromosomal changes suggest a worse prognosis. And the majority suggests nothing at all. And they are considered intermediate, intermediate risk, uh, cytogenetic risk. And then there's mutations that were discovered about 10, 15 years ago, such as FLT3 mutations, NPM1 mutations, CDP alpha mutations, that in turn had better or worse prognosis. And when uh, we looked at all of these factors together, the chromos global chromosomal changes in the leukemic cells and mutations, we were able to splay out prognostic risk in terms of how patients do uh, prognostically over time with traditional conventional treatment, which was typically chemotherapy. And this is uh, from a, uh, about a 10-year-old paper now uh, looking at uh, traditional mutational and cytogenetic risk and how patients do. If they have favorable risk markers in general, that's the blue line at the top, uh, they tend to do better. Again, the top two plots there uh, are younger patients, the bottom two are older patients in terms of disease-free and overall survival. As you can imagine, the younger patients do better than our older patients whose curves more closely approximate each other, whether they have better or worse risk AML. Uh, so I got lucky, and I've gotten, uh, I've been lucky in many ways in my life, but I feel very fortunate that when I started to come out of fellowship, all of a sudden AML got more complex. And you would think that's potentially bad, but we just found out it's more complex. It was complex to begin with. And then uh, over time, we found a whole host of alterations and mutations uh, that made the disease highly complex. And here is a, a pie graph. It's the ugliest form of pie. It's an AML pie. So uh, generally speaking, you know, when I uh, go and round upstairs, it sort of approximates what you see here. AML uh, right now is a conglomerate of probably 50 or 60 different diseases. Uh, in the old days, it was one disease because underneath the microscope, you would see a large population of immature myeloid cells all looking the same. But now that we know what's in those myeloid cells, we know how each of these diseases is different, acts differently, has a different prognosis. So when I round upstairs on the inpatient service, I go into one room and I see a 25-year-old with a FLT3 mutant de novo AML. I go into another room and I see an 85-year-old female who had years of cytopenias, likely MDS, and now has AML. I go into another room, I see a 45-year-old with a history of sarcoma or breast cancer who was treated for that sarcoma and breast cancer, and as a result has a therapy-related AML. All of those patients have AML, 
those patients all have different diseases. And that's the challenge because our approach to the treatment of AML since 1974 or earlier has been the same. Hit them with the same big large hammer, which was induction chemotherapy in order to reboot the system. And as you can imagine, when you have different nails, oftentimes the same hammer won't do the trick. But as a result of the uh, understanding we gained over the course of the last 10 years, I would say, we've also understood the biology of the disease much better. And that has allowed us to target the disease in new and novel ways and gain some therapeutic benefit and impact for our patients, which is what I'm going to uh, speak about shortly. But before I do that, let's talk about how the treatment was at least is actually, uh, up until the present day, which is traditional induction chemotherapy. And these are the initial papers, October 1968. And the next one I show you, I think, is from 1974. And these were the initial seminal papers that established the role of induction chemotherapy in acute myeloid leukemia. And we still use these regimens. Okay, And that's a little sad, but we're hoping to change that. Um, these induction chemotherapy regimens generally include two drugs. One is an anthracycline, either an idorubicin or donorubicin on occasion, uh, mitoxantrone, in combination with another cytotoxic chemotherapeutic agent called ARAC or cytarabine. These induction regimens vary. We give seven and three here, seven plus three, which is seven days of cytarabine infusion. The first three of those seven days, you get idorubicin or donorubicin. But other sites get other forms of induction therapy, generally with the same two types of drugs, but in different schedules. Does it matter? No. When I was at Johns Hopkins, we used to give a regimen called ActiVP16. The folks at uh, MD Anderson give another regimen called IA. The same two drugs, different schedules, same outcomes, which in general is around a remission rate of 75%. So these patients come into the hospital for about seven days or 10 days, depending on the regimen, they get a chemotherapy, and then their marrow empties out. Okay, And for that reason, because they become transfusion dependent, because they are at risk of infections, they remain in the hospital approximately 30 days, plus or minus five, as I tell all patients. And during that time, they're bored, they're upset, they're miserable. But by the time their blood counts hopefully recover, which is around day 30, they leave the hospital. And then a bone marrow biopsy is performed. That bone marrow biopsy should establish a suppression of leukemic cells below 5%, and with normal blood count recovery at that point, we call that a remission. And about 70 to 75% of patients who achieve, who receive induction chemotherapy, achieve a complete remission. To hammer home the point, uh, this is an imperfect uh, uh, a cartoon, a diagram of the hematopoietic cascade, which shows you the hematopoietic stem cells. Those were the same stem cells that Dr. Ebert was talking about this morning, potentially being impacted uh, by uh, changes that, call, that cause CHIP or the clonal hematopoiesis. Um, well, these uh, cells go a process of differentiation and maturation over decades. Uh, and over time, you form the white cells, the red cells, and the platelets that ultimately escape out of the marrow, circulate in the blood, live a period of days to weeks, and die a natural death where the marrow then produces more as a result of this slow, gradual maturation process down this cascade. And in fact, if you look in a normal person's marrow, you'll see cells at all stages of normal uh, maturation and differentiation. It's like a garden of different looking cells, especially with the staining that the hematopathologists do. It truly looks very colorful. But when an alteration happens early on and you form that ugly blue cell, which I'm not sure 
it shows very well, that's an altered cell that no longer knows how to mature normally. And a series of alterations can potentially do that. And then you may accrue additional alterations that lead to the proliferation of said ugly cell. And when you do a bone marrow biopsy of a leukemic patient, that's what you see large homogenous monomorphic cells that look very immature clogging up the marrow and you know when i talk to my mom even to the current day she said what exactly do you do how do patients with aml present well i say mom they present with very low blood counts typically this is why the marrow is clogged up with ugly malignant cells and patients unfortunately present with low white cell count risk of infection low red cell parameters risk of cardiopulmonary compromise, low platelets, risk of severe bleeding and coagulopathy. And what induction chemotherapy does is empties out the marrow, attempts to repopulate the marrow with the normal healthy hematopoietic cells that were there before, and about 70 to 75% of the time we accomplish that. But as you can see in the lower right panel, the leukemic cells are still there hiding. And this process of induction chemotherapy never cures leukemia. You need the second phase of treatment called consolidation, the hope for which is to prolong that remission to five years and call it arbitrarily a cure. So again, example of my parents, computer breaks down, they call me up, computer doesn't work. What is the first thing you say? Control, alt, delete. And in many ways, induction chemotherapy is what I call the control-alt-delete of AML. You hope that you'll get a normal desktop to pop up after a period of 30 days. Sometimes you're lucky. Sometimes you get the error message again. So we talked about induction, the goal of which is remission. You get that about 70% of the time. The second phase of treatment has and remains consolidation, uh, which can be repeating rounds of uh, high uh, dose cytarabine chemotherapy for patients who have favorable risk or intermediate risk. But for those who have aggressive disease or high-risk disease, and many of those with intermediate risk disease who have a donor, the consolidation of choice is a bone marrow transplant. So this is the approach. Anybody can treat AML these days. You give induction, hope for a remission. If you get a remission and the patient can tolerate it, you move them towards a consolidation paradigm, which can be either chemotherapy if they're favorable risk, or if they're adverse risk and hopefully have a donor get them to a transplant in an effort to prolong that remission out to five years, the arbitrary definition of a cure. This is, so are we successful with that? Not most of the time. Most patients relapse even after a bone marrow transplant, and that gets worse with age. Why? Because probably older patients cannot tolerate intensive treatment, are not candidates for a bone marrow transplant, have uglier disease, are more likely to have MDS, um, and uh, in general have um, higher likelihood of comorbidity and functional compromise, which limits uh, treatment options. So the older you are, unfortunately, the worse you do with this disease. It's not only age that impacts your prognosis, but where you are in the course of your disease. If your disease comes back, you're in tough shape. In general, you have additional alterations and mutations. You have heterogeneous disease, more complex disease, and the likelihood of a second remission <coughs> is substantially lower. 
So this is uh, too bad Phil left because I steal a lot of his comics and I feel like this is a good one. You know, we, in, this is, a, I guess, a married couple setting expectations. But in general, AML in, in, in many ways is a process, especially in clinic, of establishing expectations. Um, and that has been the case uh, for some time. And it's been uh, sort of a wasteland in terms of therapeutic options up until around um, uh, three, four years ago. In the last decade, we've had a, uh, you know, a multiple targets as, as a result of our knowledge of the complexity of AML that have arisen, and particularly in the last three to four years, a bunch of new therapies that have emerged. And I was tasked today to talk about IDH inhibitor therapy, <clears throat> IDH1 and IDH2 mutations. Um, so that's what I'm going to turn to now. So uh, in 2009, I was a second year fellow at Johns Hopkins uh, and this New England Journal article came out um, uh, that described, uh, it was Tim Lay's group that described for the first time a mutation outside of FLT3 and MPM1 and CBP-alpha, the first, you know, those are the three that we always used to follow, called an IDH1. Immediately everybody got excited. Oh, new mutation. Oh, maybe we can inhibit it. Well, that was then. We'll talk about what happened afterwards. Um, subsequent studies uh, discovered another mutation called IDH2. IDH1, uh, which resides in the cytosol, IDH2 in the mitochondria. IDH1 mutations affect about 5 to 10% of patients with AML. IDH2 is more common, affects about 10 to 15%. Overall, about a quarter of all AML patients have some sort of an IDH mutation. Um, well, what is IDH? IDH stands for isocitrate dehydrogenase, okay? And I mentioned there's two enzymes, IDH1 and IDH2. I believe there's also an IDH3. IDH1 and IDH2, the, the gene can be mutated and altered in AML. In the typical setting, setting uh, isocitrate dehydrogenase is a key enzyme in the Krebs cycle. And the Krebs cycle is like uh, biostatistics. I've learned it numerous times in my life. Uh, <laughs> and generally speaking, um, I, this one I remember because I swim in this stuff now, but isocitrate dehydrogenase converts isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate. And in the process leads to the release of ATP and energy for the mitochondria and the cell for IDH2 and IDH1 enzymes respectively. That's what it does. So you may ask, what does a Krebs cycle enzyme have to do with AML? Okay. Well, people think they know uh, after a series of studies that were done at Memorial Sloan Kettering, some here in Boston. Um, the, the, the thought process actually with the altered IDH1 and IDH2 enzymes is that it doesn't um, catalyze the normal reaction of isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate, but a backwards reaction. Alpha-ketoglutarate causing the formation of an oncometabolite called 2-hydroxyglutarate, 2-HG, okay? And 2-HG usually is at low levels in us, at least I hope it is. But when it's at high levels, it acts as an oncometabolite. How does it do that? Well, it is thought to inhibit key enzymes that might be important in the mitigation of leukemogenesis, one of which is the TET2 enzyme. TET2 enzyme is involved in the process of methylation. So let's take a step back. If you look at the genome uh, of, uh, you know, numerous MDS and AML patients, you'll see areas of what we call hypermethylation, where there is aberrant hypermethylation, methylation that suppresses genes uh, that are key for myeloid differentiation. And that is thought to be the thought process behind how uh, MDS and AML arises, aberrant hypermethylation and suppression of key genes that are important for differentiation and maturation, what I showed earlier in the cartoon, roughly. Well, 
if you have an alkametabolite that suppresses TET, that TET enzyme is also important for the process of removing methyl groups and turning genes on when they're supposed to be on, when they're supposed to help trigger maturation and differentiation. And when TET is suppressed, you have this phenotype that emerges that is aberrantly hypermethylated with those genes being suppressed. This is interesting because generally speaking, if you have a tattoo mutation in AML, you don't have an IDH mutation. If you have an IDH mutation, you don't have a TET mutation, suggesting a commonality in the pathway that suppresses normal maturation, causing an aberrant suppression of myeloid differentiation and an AML or an MDS phenotype, okay? Hopefully that made sense. So when this first happened, you know, and I was an, uh, on the early faculty here, we thought, well, you know, 2-HG, maybe we can measure it. You know, maybe we can measure 2-HG and maybe it can act as a biomarker. And in fact, it can. You can sort of measure 2-HG in the blood, in the urine, in the spinal fluid of patients who are affected uh, with an IDH-mutated malignancy. And this is, uh, I'm not sure how well this uh, shows up, but uh, these, these are uh, graphs that we have looking at patients who have IDH wild-type AML and IDH-mutated AML. Uh, in, and we have serum, urine, uh, bone marrow aspirate and marrow cell pellet, the actual cell pellet. And again, you can sort of monitor um, uh, 2-HG levels in these patients. And basically, we looked at all of these parameters. And serum 2-HG at a 2-HG cutoff of approximately 535 has a very high specificity and sensitivity for predicting the presence of a uh, IDH mutation. Not only that, you can follow 2-HG uh, in patients who have uh, received treatment uh, for AML. We followed about 200 patients who received induction chemotherapy and monitored 2-HG in all compartments as their uh, uh, leukemia responded and as the 2-HG went away. And, uh, and at that time, corresponded it to their allelic fraction of their IDH mutation. This was one particular patient who came in with a very high white blood cell count, astronomic, astronomically elevated 2-HG levels. This is the course of his disease. He responded to induction chemotherapy, relapsed, 2-HG went up. 2-HG actually started going up before he was relapsing, responded again with a second remission, finally relapsed and unfortunately passed away from his disease. Um, so you may ask if somebody has an IDH mutation, you know, we know that FLT3 mutations have a poor prognosis, MPM1-mutated patients typically have a better prognosis. How about IDH mutations? Well, at least among these 200 or so, 250 patients with IDH mutations, we did not see a significant difference in prognosis among our patients with AML. And the field, uh, you know, there's been multiple studies that have been done, mostly retrospective. This was the only prospective one, has not, has not found a consistent effect of whether IDH mutations portend a better or worse prognosis. Just because this is an oncology meeting here, I will say that we looked at 2-HG levels across multiple solid tumor groups, including gliomas and a case of breast cancer. We were able to monitor the pa those patients' 2-HG levels as well. So that's IDH mutations. Now let's see if we can target it. Well, the first drug that emerged uh, was an IDH2 inhibitor called enacitinib. Okay. 
initially known as AG221. Um, and uh, the initial study was a dose escalation study and then an expansion into multiple cohorts looking at various patients at various states, uh, at various settings within their disease uh, trajectory. And ultimately, the expansion occurred at a dose of 100 milligrams daily, which was deemed to be safe and tolerable. We actually never reached an MTD on that study. Um, and this study lasted for about a year and a half, two years. And um, just I wanted to provide some context. Now, when I give cytotoxic chemotherapy, to patients, you obviously worry about suppression of blood counts and uh, risk of infection and bleeding and everything else that emerges as a result of that. Well, these drugs did not do that. They did not lead to a substantial suppression of blood counts. They did have their unique toxicity profiles. So anacidinib can cause hyperbilirubinemia, but not liver injury. An indirect bilirubinemia that uh, approximates uh, sort of a Gilbert's type phenomenon. Generally speaking, patients tolerated it. Nobody ever developed uh, liver failure. They just, on occasion, developed indirect bilirubinemia. Some turned yellow. Overall, that was not a major issue on study. The bigger concern was the second ticket item on this uh, uh, table, which is the IDH differentiation syndrome. The, the way by which we think these drugs work is turn myeloid differentiation back on through the mechanism, through the 2-HG mechanism I described earlier. When you do that, as you would with atro or arsenic with acute promyelocytic leukemia, you can trigger a cytokine-mediated inflammatory response, which can be severe, it can be mild, and patients may not even have it. But when it is present and it's severe, it can be lethal. Patients can die from it. Patients can end up in the ICU from it. And we'll talk about that shortly. But at least in the initial paper that was published, differentiation syndrome was reported in approximately 7 to 10% of patients. We went back and looked at it a bit more, and I'll talk about that shortly. Um, these are the responses that were seen with enosidinib, and that was why it was very exciting. Um, approximately 20-something percent of patients achieved a complete remission with a once-a-day pill. These are relapsed refractory patients. Okay, so this is pretty amazing. Some older patients who are not candidates for intensive chemotherapy. Okay. On top of that, you may say 20% is not high, but about 40% of patients had some degree of other response, partial remissions, CRIs, stable disease. Many patients with AML who you can't treat aggressively end up being transfusion dependent, end up getting multiple infections, end up having all sorts of impact on their quality of life. Um, the degree of transfusion independence that emerged from this study was, was quite uh, impressive. Uh, so patients had an improvement in their transfusion dependence, an improvement in their quality of life, less infections. So on top of the traditional complete remission, which is sort of the uh, para, uh, paradigm of response in AML, there was much more in terms of disease response. Okay. The upper curve here is the survival curve of all patients treated with the IDH2 inhibitor enosidinib. The lower curve tells you about how patients did depending on whether they responded or not. The top line is those people who achieved a remission. The middle line, all those people who achieved a less than remission response. And the bottom line are those folks who did not. So depending on how you did, your survival curve obviously reflected that. 
And acidinib wasn't the only IDH inhibitor. It was an IDH2 inhibitor. The IDH1 sister drug was ivocidinib, and it was a very similar drug design, a trial design where you had a dose escalation and a dose expansion. In this case, the dose was 500 milligrams daily. And again, uh, you saw a unique uh, toxicity profile. The toxicity profile of this drug did include QT prolongation. There were some patients on this study who had QT prolongation. Nobody achieved a life-threatening arrhythmia. Again, differentiation syndrome, leukocytosis, which oftentimes uh, uh, coexists with differentiation syndrome, was also seen uh, on this trial. Okay. And again, the response rates are shown here. CR or CRH, which is a slightly lesser response than CR, was seen in about 30% of patients. And again, a large proportion of patients had other responses that benefited them. Here is the survival curves that are shown here in terms of whether you responded or not, how well you did on these single arm studies. And also a subset of these patients cleared their IDH mutation, had a molecular response, which was also uh, quite an amazing uh, phenomenon. Uh, these are the median uh, overall survival for patients uh, who achieved response or not. It's pretty amazing. So on a single arm study, uh, the median survival was not reached for those which, who had achieved the CR or CRH and had a nine-month uh, overall survival uh, for those folks who were responders nevertheless. Again, this is pretty remarkable for patients who have relapsed and refractory disease. I talked about transfusion independence just to sort of show you this. This bar graph demonstrates the degree of transfusion independence in patients who had a CR, a CRH, any response, even patients who had no response, a subset of them, 17% and 15%, achieved transfusion independence. So that is remarkable. You know, So I don't know how many of my patients with AML have to come in two or three times a week for red cells and platelets and are constantly in the hospital with infections. If you're able to ameliorate that with a pill that you take once a day that's relatively well tolerated, that is a game changer. Ivocidinib was also looked at in patients in the upfront setting who are not eligible for intensive treatment, such as older patients. And again, the response rates were very similar to those folks who received relapsed who released who received the drug for relapsed refractory disease. So I mentioned earlier that um, we wanted to better describe differentiation syndrome because what was actually reported on the trial was simply what, pay, what the investigators thought looked like differentiation syndrome. But uh, differentiation syndrome is such a, um, you know, pleomorphic, hard-to-describe inflammatory cascade. It's a syndrome. Patients come in with a rash, pleural effusions, pericardial infusions, infiltrates, unexplained fevers. Um, so it's, it's really important to look for it and treat it if you're worried about it. But the challenge is that many of the things that we deal with AML, including AML itself, um, as well as infections and cardiopulmonary compromise that may result from treatment can look at look like differentiation syndrome. So um, how to sort of approach it and when to sort of uh, uh, address it were important considerations. Um, so how do I know that differentiation happens in AML? Well, uh, this is just a plot to sort of hammer uh, home the point. Uh, a screening bone marrow biopsy showing blasts uh, from a patient who was just about to go on study. Day 15, two weeks into treatment, you see starting the process of differentiation, cells slowly showing morphologic features of differentiation. Cycle three, day one, which is 60 days into treatment, a normal-looking marrow, a CR. Looking at 
the actual chromosomal features of this patient who had a trisomy 8. You have three copies of chromosome 8 in the blast at diagnosis. Follow that throughout as the patient's cells mature. You have a mature granulocyte and neutrophil showing the aberrant three chromosomes, three copies of the chromosome there, but the lymphocyte, which would not be impacted, showing two. So these maturing forms that look morphologically normal are chromosomally abnormal, suggesting a differentiation process as a result of exposure to a differentiating therapy, which is an IDH inhibitor. And this is a patient from Memorial Sloan Kettering from our paper that had three separate episodes of differentiation syndrome manifesting as a very high fever, pleural effusion, infiltrates as shown in the CT scans on the bottom. Um, during the course of treatment, this patient ultimately went on to have a response. I'm going to give this a shot if I can. So here is the bone marrow. The, the green are the nice, fertile-looking neutrophils as they emerge in the bone marrow and increase in uh, proportion. The blasts are the ugly red cells. They go away as the patient achieves a CRP. In the peripheral blood at the top panel, you see a rise in normal granulocytes. And in the interim, you have these episodes, three separate uh, gray episodes of uh, a syndrome manifesting as a fever as well as uh, pulmonary symptoms. And this patient was managed with steroids and hydroxyurea since, I, since the patient had concurrent rise in granulocytes in the peripheral blood um, to try and control the process. But every time the patient was perhaps too quickly taken off of steroids, he had uh, episodes of differentiation syndrome recur. We looked at all the different cases. We looked at, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of patients on this uh, trial, the dose escalation and dose expansion trial, and uh, tried our best to describe the phenomenon of differentiation syndrome seen. Uh, these included uh, shortness of breath, unexplained fever, meaning no explanation from an infection, uh, pulmonary infiltrates, hypoxia, acute kidney injury, adenopathy, rash, like a sweet syndrome type phenomenon. Um, and so patients could present in a variety of different ways. What worried us the most was the cardiopulmonary compromise, the infiltrates, the effusions. It would, it, oftentimes it would get out of hand if the patient wasn't treated or managed uh, quickly. So we developed a series of recommendations from this paper that said, that basically tried to outline our approach, which would be try your best as quickly as possible to rule out potential secondary causes of what you see in front of you. But if the disease progresses quickly, or if the process, the syndrome progresses quickly, start steroids, which would be dexamethasone 10 milligrams twice a day. And if the white count is shooting up with maturing forms, hydroxyurea to control the leukocytosis. If you have time to rule out these secondary causes, you should, because antibiotics, you know, uh, cardiac optimization may address the issue, and this may not be differentiation syndrome, but do not wait. And after the period stabilizes, after the person stabilizes, after a period of steroids, you can then slowly taper down the dose and continue with the management of the patient's leukemia as you were before. And this was the recommendation we provided. So the single-arm studies of IDH inhibitor monotherapy were quickly followed by other efforts to see if IDH inhibitor therapy can be combined with conventional treatments, which in our field was induction chemotherapy, which I uh, mentioned earlier, and hypomethylating agents, which are a more recent addition in the last 20 years um, in terms of gentler therapy for older patients. And these studies are now ongoing. Uh, the top... Uh, uh, the, the, the top table and the bottom 
figure look at uh, are showing patients uh, treated with an hypomethylating agent with an IDH inhibitor. This is an interim analysis of a, um, uh, of a uh, study that has not been reported in full, but it seems like it's promising. You're starting to get uh, remission rates in the 60% range when you combine IDH inhibitor therapy with hypomethylating therapy. Hypomethylating therapy for older patients traditionally causes a remission in approximately 20 to 30% of patients, so that's remarkable. Induction chemotherapy can also be added to um, IDH inhibitor therapy. In this setting, I don't see a significant difference yet, at least in what's been reported, in terms of a difference between the remission rate you get with induction chemotherapy. But nevertheless, these studies have to be done. Phase three studies are ongoing to see if there is a true difference in terms of therapeutic potential. Finally, I think I have two minutes, I wanted to talk about maintenance therapy. So uh, the therapeutic uh, approach uh, after a transplant or after a consolidation to keep a patient in uh, remission can be uh, either an approach to maintenance where you give a drug to try and prevent relapse, a preemptive approach where you're suspicious of relapse and you try and suppress that relapse, and then actually treating the active disease, which is treatment of relapse disease. So it is always better to try and prevent something from happening rather than trying to put it back into the box. So um, our uh, cancer center has looked at another class of drugs, uh, FLT3 inhibitors as maintenance therapy. So patients who have a FLT3 mutation uh, get treatment, get a transplant, uh, get put on a FLT3 inhibitor to prevent relapse subsequently. And, and uh, we have actually shown uh, that patients receiving FLT3 inhibitor oral therapy after transplant have a much lower likelihood of relapse and an ongoing phase three study currently is uh, uh, you know doing very well in accrual to try and establish that uh, role uh, in the post-transplant setting. We've recently started the process of looking at IDH inhibitors in the post-transplant setting given their tolerability and efficacy in the upfront setting to see if we can prevent relapse in patients who have IDH mutations and go on to transplant. Okay, so there is currently in parallel fashion two studies, an IDH1 inhibitor study and an IDH2 inhibitor study in patients who are IDH mutated and post-transplant. So just to close, it's an exciting time uh, for AML. These are all the different drugs that since uh, <laughs> in uh, April of 2017 have been approved in various settings uh, for uh, our disease. Uh, some only apply to a subset of patients like IDH-mutated patients or FLT3-mutated patients, but others are more global um, and have had some substantial impact on our field. I don't think they've changed our current conventional approach. Many of our patients, unfortunately, still get induction chemotherapy, but they have provided options for those folks who have relapsed, for those folks who have mutationally defined subsets of disease. So I think it's an exciting time, and I hope that we continue to make advances. Uh, just to sort of temper some degree of excitement, these drugs are highly expensive. So I mentioned that anacidinib is 100 milligrams daily, indefinitely, which means until you're alive. Uh, well, uh, it's $1,000 uh, per dose, right? So that can be quite expensive, as you can do the math, I suspect. And uh, ivocidinib is also 1,000-something per dose because it's 500 per 250. The dose is 500 milligrams a day. So you can imagine how the costs uh, can pile up here. So the costs of these drugs are very high. Um, but they're also highly efficacious, and we have to find a way to potentially address the cost of therapy in our diseases going forward. So, future of AML. 
reasons for optimism. Improved outcomes due to better prognostication, better selection in terms of clinical trials, supportive care, the emergence of effective targeted therapies such as IDH inhibitors, FLT3 inhibitors, BCL2 inhibitors, novel combinations. Uh, using these drugs, um, specifically BCL2 inhibitors in combination, have shown a lot of promise in the last few years. Novel chemotherapeutic approaches for higher risk populations. And then will this decade see more approved AML therapies than the last four decades combined? I think we're getting to that. So finally, we're seeing some flowers in the desert. Thank you so much for your attention. You didn't, uh, uh, Amir, thanks so much for a great talk. And you didn't talk at all about mechanisms of resistance. Uh, I, I guess there's some interesting information there. Well, it hasn't been presented yet, Bruce. Uh, this, uh, it's it's going to be presented at ASH in December. Uh, Are you going to talk about it now? Uh, well, I, you know, I think there's there's... There is some there's some exciting stuff coming out. It really exciting stuff um, in terms of mutations that have been picked up. So, so does does FLT three make sense in terms of the mutations that you see? Uh, in what? Repeat your question again, so I understand. So do, you you talked about FLT three uh, uh, maintenance therapy. Yes, yes. Does that make sense in terms of preventing yes. mutations that yes. that arise? So much so that uh, we're having some difficulty with accrual uh, to our gilteritinib post-transplant study. Because nobody wants to control Because they want, yeah, because they don't want placebo. Yeah. Um, and yeah. because there have been some European studies that have looked at lesser FLT3 inhibitors that have shown an advantage. Oh, okay. So it's, it's difficult. Um, so this, but, is, this is going to be presented at ASH then in uh, I don't know when we finished accrual. At some point soon, all this is going to be presented. Yeah, yeah. One other question. What about a minimal residual disease? Are you monitoring uh, molecular uh, markers for response? Uh, in AML, uh, MRD is a, a, a morass and a, a challenge to sort of talk about uh, briefly. But su su suffice it to say that MRD, there's a substantial interest in studying it in clinical trials where it may have promise uh, to, as a surrogate endpoint. In AML, it's hard, as was mentioned a couple of days ago by my friend uh, Chris Horrigan, because it's certainly prognostic. So if you have minimal residual disease that's detected by mutation oral flow cytometric platforms, in general, it's bad. But what to do about it, uh, folks do not know. So with that said, my, my good friend is... Okay, I have a real <laughs> quick question. One second. At the beginning, you started... Uh, do you believe in the 2KG hypothesis or just the way you were saying... 2HG. 2HG, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. I the, the way in the sense, do I believe in it? Yes. Yeah. You think I that think that's it's, I think it is, I, well, I think it is a mechanism of leukemogenesis, suppression of uh, 2HG. Whether there are other factors involved in how these drugs work, I think that's uh, debatable. I think people are working. 